0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. A few months ago, there was a sign out front, and it read, Obey Jesus or Hell." And then it listed five or six sins, and there was flames in the background, and someone had the audacity to come to me and say, did you put that sign up, obey Jesus, or hell? In fact, there was a a website listed at the bottom, and sure enough, I was curious, so I went to the website, followed to their YouTube links, and started to watch some of their teaching and their... Whatever else was going on, and one of the things that kept popping up was the danger of this thing called OSAS, O-S-A-S. I was like, what in the world is OSAS? I was curious. It was an acronym that stood for once saved, always saved. And then I realized I'm an OSAS, right? I believe that we are perpetuated in faith, that when Jesus saves us, he saves us all the way. That he doesn't just start something, that he doesn't intend to bring to completion and finishing. That when God calls us into divine grace from before the foundations of the earth, and he brings us to that moment of salvation, he intends to take us all the way to the gates of heaven. So there I was, kind of invited into this critical nature of it. And I thought, if I were to respond to
1: these people, how would I respond? this. If I plant something that doesn't survive, I'm not a good gardener. If I plant something that doesn't survive, I'm not a good gardener. I shouldn't be in the gardening
0: business if I consistently plant things that don't make it all the way. In fact, that's been my experience with anything I plant. It dies almost immediately when I touch it.
1: Truth is, our Savior is a good gardener. He takes his nation, Israel. He plants them on his holy
0: mountain, as Moses' words describe here. What he starts, he finishes.
1: For some of us, this is particularly important. We feel every day the weight of our sinfulness. We need to know that what God starts, he finishes. It's our main point this morning is that God saves his people all the way. And we're really going to do this
0: differently. There's just going to be two points this morning. You can see there's some subpoints under there. But we're starting off in verses 1 through 12, that God's temporary enemies are destroyed. And in verses 13 through 18, that God's eternal people are established. In fact, this kind of rings true throughout all history, doesn't it? Not just for Egypt and Israel. It rings true to this day. God sees fit for a time when he will bring justice and judgment,
1: but will also establish his true people. I want to show you the structure of this song that Moses has written.
0: It starts off in verses 1 through 5, and Moses tells Israel that he praises God who saved him by his defeat of Egypt. And then in verses 6 through 12, Moses praises God who establishes his glory by, by defeating the self-confident Egyptians. And what we'll see is there's two things he uses, his strong right hand and his nostrils, of all things. Verses 13 through 18, God leads his people. And in verses 19 through 20, God's people respond to God's salvation. But we've structured it a little bit differently because Moses' poem, his song, hinges upon contrast such that whatever God has done with Egypt negatively is mirrored in the positive of what he's doing with Israel. If Egypt goes down into the sea, Israel's brought up onto the mountain of God. If Egypt is shattered and consumed, Israel is established. If Egypt is an object of God's fury, Israel is an object of God's steadfast love. You'll also notice, according to our outline this morning, and go ahead, Ryan, to the the next slide here, that each of these uh, points has three subdivisions, and they kind of mirror one another. So point number one, uh, they go down, is mirrored by point number three and point two. They go up, uh, point six and... or. Point two, verses 6 and 7, they are gone, is mirrored by, they continue forever, and they are objects of God's fury, is mirrored by, they are objects of God's steadfast love. You'll just notice we've kind of done this inversion thing to kind of help us remember exactly what Moses says to us this morning. With that being said, I want to dive in. And we start off with this idea that God's temporary enemies are destroyed. And one of the things that Moses pulls out most significantly in verses 4 and 7 and 10 and 12 is that these Egyptians go down, right? It's something that a a young, cocky athlete might say to somebody else. They'll say, you're going down, right? I'm going to take you down to Chinatown. I'm Whatever else you might say, I was never an athlete, and I never had the
1: opportunity to say any of those things.
0: They go down, and this going down is both literal and metaphorical. It's literal in that Egypt is sunk in verse 4. They're consumed in verse 7. They're covered in verse 10. They're swallowed in verse 12. All of the languages is culminating to say that these Egyptians are going down and down and down into oblivion. They end up at the bottom of the Red Sea, and you can remember last week as we kind of unpacked this story, Israel crosses the Red Sea, Egypt follows in after them, and so the walls of water are on their right and on their left, and Israel passes through on dry ground, but as Egypt crosses, God tells Moses to extend his hand over the sea, and he does it one last time, and the waters collapse on all of these chariots all of the hosts of the army of Pharaoh, and so Moses and Israel, by God's power, have the victory. Egypt literally ends up under the sea, but it's metaphorical in that Egypt is now ruined. Remember that statement amidst the plagues uh, before Pharaoh's officials in Exodus chapter 10. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? This is um, Pharaoh's assistants and advisors saying to him, Pharaoh, Egypt is done. These plagues have ruined Egypt. What was once highly exalted, the strongest nation on earth, is now being brought low and lower.
1: The astounding thing to Moses is that God took down this... Powerful nation. Look what he says in verse 4.
0: It says, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The Moses highlights three terms used from chapter 14 to describe the strength of Egypt's army. That the Pharaoh had chosen these 600 chariots, and then he grabbed every other chariot he could find in the land, and he filled them with his chosen officers. The sum total of this is a group of, of thousands of men trained to kill and equipped with the best of modern warfare to accomplish their task. Egypt had numbers, equipment, strategic advantage, and experience to its advantage.
1: But notice what God's weapons are, according to Moses' song. The song gives us two different items which God uses. In verses 6 and 12, God uses his right hand. And in verse 8, he uses his nose. His nostrils.
0: What Moses is saying is with a nose and one hand
1: tied behind his back, God defeated the strongest army on the face of the earth. See, they go down because of the strength of the Lord. But it's not just this that Moses wants to highlight. In verses six and seven, Moses wants to tell us that they're gone. Look at verse six, your right hand, O Lord, glorious
0: in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, you send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. Look at these words, they're shattered in in verse 6 and then consumed in verse 7. Both of these are images that something that's no longer usable, that's no longer uh, usable or or, uh, useful, I should say. Something shattered cannot be used. Something like stubble that's consumed is no longer usable. After Egypt's catastrophic losses, they would no longer be a threat to Israel's growth. What what God is highlighting here in Exodus 15 is to say, hey, I've saved my
1: people, but I'm also going to perpetuate my people. Egypt is no longer a threat to them. So they go down they're gone. Verse 7, if we're not careful, we might miss this.
0: These Egyptians are objects of God's fury. Look what he says, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, you send out your
1: fury. These Egyptians are objects of God's fury. You could just stop and just notice some of how Moses describes the
0: Egyptians in verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Such pride. Such arrogance. Not forget that these people who made these statements
1: had just seen 10 plagues destroy and ruin their land. Proverbs 16:18 says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty
0: spirit before a fall. Should have that one memorized cuz I try
1: to quote it to my kids every time they win at a board game. We do well to remember that pride is the downfall of the sinner. Verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send
0: out your fury. It consumes them like stubbles. To say that God had wrath at Egypt. If we were to rewind a bit, there's this long list of sins and grievances performed by Egypt against God's people. Chapter one, we saw the purposeful subjugation of Israel by Egypt. Pharaoh said, These people are too numerous. We've got to subject, subject them to our authority. And so in verse 14, they add to that this bitter, hard labor as slaves. And then in verses 16 and 22 of chapter one, they start killing Israelite children. In chapter five, when Moses comes and speaks to Pharaoh and says, Let my people go, Pharaoh says, you are idle, and he doubles their workload by making them gather their own chaff for brick making. See, God has every right to oppose Egypt because of the past sins that they've performed against Israel, but also because of their prideful obstinance to him. How many times did Moses come and speak to Pharaoh on behalf of God and tell Pharaoh exactly what God wanted him to do, and how many times did Pharaoh reject that? Even to the extent that later on in the plagues, around plague eight or nine, I can't remember. They all kind of bleed together, right? Pharaoh says, I've
1: sinned against the Lord, and yet continues on in his action. See, the recognition is this morning that a good gardener removes any threat to the plant.
0: He clears the ground of all of its weeds and other plants that may take from its nutrients. He, he protects it from any b- bugs or um, uh, things that would eat it. I forget what you call those, herbivores or whatever, right? You can tell I'm not a gardener. I'm working an analogy that's way out of my field.
1: See, some, some things have to die for the plant to flourish. morning, God is powerful to punish.
0: God's of the business of taking self-exalted things and humbling them. This is what Jesus says in Luke 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Or Luke mentioned what Peter's words were or excuse me, Josiah mentioned what Peter's words were. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Sometimes this strikes us the wrong way, doesn't it? Why does God have to punish? Why does God have to do that? Why can't he just let them go and do their own thing? And he starts his own little community over here. Why does God have to punish? I heard an interview this week, uh, with Tim Keller. Now, you, you might know that Tim Keller recently passed away. And so there's been a lot of kind of re airing of interviews and other things this last week. But this interview with, interview with him was, it was talking about this concept of judgment. Tim Keller saying that there's this thing that's just, we, we don't recognize that some sins are inherently wicked.
1: And he specifically mentioned slavery. Slavery is inherently wicked. It's not just that slavery
0: was bad for society. It's not just that slavery was bad for these individual people. He's saying there's something about this concept of slavery that it's inherently wrong. There's no context in which slavery would ever be right, or at least chattel slavery as we describe it. It's always wrong to subjugate people against their will and force them into bondage, into work they do not want to do and
1: are not on board with. The recognition is that there are things on the earth that are, or that
0: we do on the earth that are inherently wrong. And yet our human systems of justice often underpunish or leave such things unpunished. I think we can all agree that if Jeffrey Epstein or Bernie Madoff or Harvey Weinstein did what they were accused of, whatever punishment they received was lacking. In fact, there are some who would have perpetrated so much wrong in this life that their single life could never bring about justice. In the murder of one if the murder of one person requires a life sentence think of what wrongs inflicted against an infinite god must also be worth. So if I sin against you that's one thing. But if I sin against a police officer that's a different thing. And if I sin against the president of the United States, that's a different thing, right? There's an escalation. If I threaten you with physical violence, that's one thing. If I threaten a policeman with physical violence, that's another thing. If I threaten the president of the United States, that's a whole different thing. In the same way, when we violate God's righteousness and holiness, this is a wrong that is of infinite worth. See, the bottom line
1: is this. If we are to have a sense of justice, we have to have one who brings punishment don't we if we're going to have a sense of justice of right and wrong of good and bad we
0: have to have one who who actually keeps those parameters in place
1: so this is why judgment's necessary see according to moses god brings down the
0: self-exalted When Egypt says, I will pursue, I will overtake,
1: God uses their over-pursuit, their arrogance, to bring about justice. Think about this here for a second. We're only halfway through Moses' song,
0: and we've heard all about God's powerful judgment to Egypt, but he also has something to say about the rich grace that he extends to Israel. In verses 13 through 18, we see this unpacking that happens, right? Look at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased and you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. If Egypt was the object of God's fury, notice here in verse 13 that Israel is the object of God's steadfast love. What it says in verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. That word said, steadfast love is Hesed. It's God's covenant faithfulness to his people. God made a promise long ago in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, he made a promise to a foreign-born Abraham who he brought into his land, and he said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And that promise is leading to the actions that we see here in Exodus, where God will deliver his people from their slavery to Egypt so that he can preserve his people for the promise which he gave them. As God preserves Israel, he does so out of faithfulness to his love and care for the promise that he made for Abraham, according to the promise that he made to him in Genesis chapter 12. Now, notice some of the things that are stated about this nation. It says the people whom you have, what, redeemed, the idea of buying something back, right? You go to Kroger, you see the bread in the aisle, you hand over the 250 or whatever How would, uh, bread, I don't know. I get sidetracked. Anyway, you hand over the $2.50, you buy it, redeem back the bread, right? It's not only that. We see this later on in verse 16. He says, till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have what? Purchased. The same concept is there again, that God is buying back Israel. The idea is that because they escaped God's wrath in the 10th plague that God performed against Egypt, that God has bought them back. God has in some sense purchased them. In fact, that's the statement that's said time and time again in the New Testament. First Corinthians, chapter six, and in chapter seven, you were bought with a price. Paul tells the Ephesian elders, and in, in Acts chapter twenty, that the church has been obtained by Jesus' own blood. In Hebrews chapter nine, that we are bought with an eternal redemption. This idea of being bought isn't foreign to us. We've been purchased. We've been bought by the blood of Jesus. Israel was bought seemingly with the blood of a lamb, but it actually pointed forward to that same blood of Christ. And while Egypt had, was the object of God's furious wrath, Israel is the object of his covenant faithfulness. And Egypt had earned disfavor with God. Israel had not earned their new favor with God, but God gave it to them anyway. Not only are the objects of God's steadfast love. They continue forever. Look at verses 17 through 18. It says, You will bring them in and plant them on your holy mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever does it again in, in verse thirteen? He says, "You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode." In Exodus chapter three, Moses was wandering around in the desert with these sheep. He's tending to these sheep, and he sees this bush that's on fire. He sees the presence of God. He goes and he takes off his sandals, and he hears the name of God for the first time. And God tells him in Exodus chapter three, verse twelve, uh, verse. Uh, later on there in chapter 3, he tells him that someday he will bring him to this holy mountain with the nation of Israel. You remember that? So this is what Moses is referring to. He's saying, you will take us to Mount Sinai. You will bring us to your holy mountain. This place is the abode where Moses says that the abode of God, where he's to reign forever, according to verse 18. So as Israel's is purchased by God, brought into the abode or the sanctuary of God, we see that Israel, too, will dwell eternally with Him, or at least that's Moses' expectation. Verses 14 and six through 16 spell this out. Israel's new neighbors are all put on notice, right? Philistia, Edom. All of these nations now recognize that you don't mess with Israel because Israel's God just put away Egypt. It's worth noting that when God has powerfully saved his people, he proved that he's capable of preserving them too. When God brought about miraculous plagues to release Egypt or Israel from Egypt, it showed his power to preserve them as well.
1: See, while Egypt was temporary, shattered and consumed, Israel is being established forever. Egypt's a product of God's fury. Egypt is short-lived. Israel's a product of God's steadfast love. Israel will be forever. It's not just this. Verses 13 through 17, we see this movement. If if Egypt was to go down into the waters, be sunk, Israel goes up. Verse 13 tells us that, that God brings them into your abode, into his abode, God's abode. Verse 17 tells us that he actually brings Israel into his holy mountain. Israel is guided to God's holy mountain, verse 13.
0: They're planted in God's holy mountain in verse 17. Thus, Egypt's doing this thing where they're moving further and further away from the presence of God, and Israel's
1: moving closer and closer to the presence of God. See, not only is Israel different from Egypt in its
0: longevity, it's different from Egypt in its presence with God. Egypt goes down, Israel goes up. God's enemies are moved further and further away from him until they are ultimately placed in a godless existence. But God's people are drawn closer and closer to his
1: presence. See, so far what we've done is we've looked at this contrast. We've seen that
0: Egypt is defined by their going away from God's presence, by their being the object of God's fury, their temporary nature. Whereas God's people are given this eternality, this longevity. They're given the covenant faithfulness of God, and they are established forever on God's holy mountain in his presence. But what we haven't seen is what it is about God himself that establishes this. You know, something that's that's happening in the book of Exodus is we're kind of getting a... um, an introduction to who God is. You ever go to those uh, meetings and they do an icebreaker and you're supposed to stand up and say something about like, my name is Jason. I come from Troy, Ohio. And if, uh, if I were a pizza, I would be a pepperoni pizza with mushrooms or whatever else, because then no
1: one would like me or whatever. I don't know. God's giving us an introduction to himself. Exodus has been about
0: the story of God divulging his name to his people. In fact, in chapter 3, as we've talked about, Moses gets the name of God, Yahweh, the self-existent one. And when we get to chapter 5, Pharaoh says to Moses, I don't know who Yahweh is. And then he gives him 10 plagues to describe exactly who he is. Well, now we get to listen in as this denouement of the battle with Egypt
1: happens, as Moses reflects upon this God that he's been introduced to. What does he say? fundamentally Moses says that God is powerful
0: to preserve through salvation look at some of the things that he says Moses tells us all about that what he's learned about God in verse two he says he is Moses's strength and song after all Moses didn't save Israel it was decidedly God's work, and all of the plagues, God's salvation, all of these things God had so wrought amongst Israel that Moses could not claim to have done any of it. God was Moses' strength, and because he was Moses' strength, he was his song. Verse 2 says that he is Moses' salvation. This is what Moses encouraged Israel toward in the last chapter, right? In chapter 14, when the armies of Pharaoh are pressing down, Moses says to the nation of Israel, stand and see the Lord's salvation, right? Moses sees that God is his salvation, that God miraculously saved him from the land of Egypt. Verse 3 tells us that God is a warrior. God fights on behalf of his people, that he will not sit idly by while his covenant people suffer. Verse 6 says that he's glorious in power. In fact, his, his right hand, the euphemism for his strength is, is powerful. And verse 11, he's unique. Who is like you, O Lord, among the other gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? There's no one like Yahweh. His strength and power are unmatched. His use, uh, he uses his strength and power to save his people from their enemies. But there's one unique reflection in this song that happens in verse 13. It's where the psalm kind of pivots, where the psalm kind of changes, away from God's judgmental wrath to Egypt and toward Israel's undeserved favor. Moses says that God redeems by his steadfast love. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. What's unique about this is this is the first time that Moses uses the term steadfast love in the book of Exodus, which is unique. Particularly, it's God's steadfast love, which has driven God to redeem his people. And it's God's steadfast love, which moves him
1: to guide Israel to his eternal home. See, the truth is, the strength of the plant has to do most directly with the strength of the gardener. When the gardener gives the
0: environment and the growth necessary to the plant, it survives. He he provides it with sunlight and food and pruning and weeding. The skill of the gardener is
1: the best predictor of the health and vitality of the plant. God has planted us to thrive. Paul writes to the Philippians, this letter that he's writing to these people that he loves.
0: It's filled with all of these kind of juicy statements of of his affection and his love for this church in Philippi, and he starts it off in Philippians chapter 1, he's convinced in verse 6 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He writes later on in Romans chapter 8, that those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See, whatever God starts, he's going to finish. Whatever God begins, he's going to end or bring to its end or to its conclusion. See, God so enacts his steadfast love for Israel to not only defeat their enemy, but also to preserve their future. When God saves, he saves all the way. He doesn't just take Israel out of Egypt and call them an Uber to get to Israel.
1: He guides them. He lovingly leads them. Christian, I have to stop here, and we have to say, if you found yourself at the foot of
0: the cross seeking redemption and justification from the person of Jesus Christ,
1: and that moment was real, you will continue all the way until your glorification those God predestined he also glorifies See what happened thirty three a d outside the city of Jerusalem is that Jesus Christ went to a cross
0: that there he purchased with his own blood. Salvation of all who have faith in him. That faith or that blood didn't just make it possible for you and I to be saved, it saved us all the way.
1: It did its effective work in us. So that if you're here and you're anxious, anxious about the things that press on your soul, Jesus' blood is sufficient. It's enough. It will save you all the way. There's no thing that separates us from
0: the love of God. I want to see that as we press a little bit farther into Romans
1: chapter 8. You've heard this passage before, right? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for
0: us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As it is written, for your sakes, we were being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things to come, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does Paul say? He says, God will not spare anything in continuing our salvation. In verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also also with him graciously give us all things? If we are justified by Jesus's death, no charge against us is sufficient. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. No circumstance will separate us from his saving work. In verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, God has defeated our enemy, be it sin, Satan, or death by Jesus's death so that our salvation is as sure as as his resurrection, it's as secure as his throne in heaven, it's as trustworthy as his promise. Christian, if you are in Christ, there is nothing to separate you from him. His blood is sufficient to unite you to him so that when he saves you, he saves you all the way. Our God is a good gardener.
1: And when he plants us in his fertile soil of grace, he will bring us to full growth and maturity. It's for this reason that we praise God. (laughs) We praise God and
0: we keep going in the faith, right? Maybe first thing, let's just talk about this. We keep going, we persevere. That's one of the defining marks of Christians is they, they keep going, they, they keep believing, they keep trusting in Jesus. It doesn't mean that you expect this sinless existence that's not real Christian, if God is powerful to save, He's powerful to keep. There's no sin that separates you, no condemnation for those who in Christ. There is no difficulty to separate you. No trial in your life will be strong enough to strip you from God's spirit. No circumstance that limits you. You know, one of my concerns for us sometimes is I hear this. I, I hear people talk about their
1: faith in the past tense. They talk about the golden years of their belief. Well, there was a time when I was growing five years ago. And I think if this doctrine that we understand is true, we should be growing now, right?
0: We might have temporary setbacks. We might have seasons of hardness, but we should kind of
1: like the stock market, see our lives kind of falling, but raising, falling, but raising. I heard a commercial this week that made the following claim. said this, in the last 30 years... Over 40 million people have left the church. 40 million people. They went on to describe that this deconstruction, they
0: said, was the most significant spiritual movement in American history. Now, I don't know if I agree with that or not, but let's bring this claim to bear what I heard on this commercial to what we're hearing in Exodus chapter 15 and what we hear through the theology of the apostle Paul. If God brings his people all
1: the way home, how are 40 million people leaving the church? The most obvious answer is they weren't really Christians. Now, if you say this to a deconstructing person, it's highly offensive.
0: You say, I don't know if you were really a Christian. They say, No, no, no. I went to church. I read the Bible. I prayed. I did this and I did that. I invited Jesus into my heart. I threw my stick in the fire. I walked the aisle. I did all of those things. Sounds to me like, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in
1: your name? Jesus says to those in Matthew. Chapter 7, Depart from Me, I never knew you. It's right here. They were of a different orientation.
0: Christianity has never been about the things that you do or you perform to make yourself in the community of faith. And when you press against those who are deconstructing, they want to say their litany of the things that they did that made them in the faith.
1: And that's not how it works. Christianity has never been about what you do. It's about what God is doing for you and in you through Christ. And this kind of puts our finger on the problem, doesn't it? For years, we have created false conversions, given false assurance of faith, told people that they're fine because they did this or that or the other. The truth is, when you truly trust Christ, he'll save you all the way. But you really have to turn to Christ and not to yourself. I love what happens in verses 19 through 21. Look at this. Verse 19, for when the horses of Pharaoh
0: with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with the tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for His tri- he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, just a couple observations here. This song started off in verse 1, and it's Moses and the correct translation would be the sons of Israel. And it concludes with Miriam and the women of Israel picking up the refrain that Moses sang in verse 2. So what God's salvation does is it unifies all of his people around his glorious saving work. And it gives us all cause to praise him. It gives us cause to praise him because we know that he won't just take us out of Egypt, that he'll take us to Mount Sinai. That he won't just leave us at the cross. He'll actually bring us into his presence in heaven for all eternity. This should cause us as a body, as a collective group of those who are called in Jesus
1: Christ to praise God with abundance. When God shows us his salvation, when he shows us his power to keep his people, we should respond with joyful singing. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we pray now that you would give us a heart of gratitude. Because you have
0: saved us, because you preserve us, Lord, we come before you and praise your magnificent holy name. Lord, we could not save ourselves. We had no capability before your throne to do righteous things. So, Lord, you sent Jesus to do righteousness for us to take our sin upon us, to give us his righteous life in its stead so that we might come before you without condemnation. So, Lord, we praise your name. We thank you for grace that's undeserved and unmerited. We pray, Lord,
1: that you would make us people of gratitude, that you would bring us all the way home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.